Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Covenanters. You guys ever heard of the Covenanters? It's actually a historical thing, and for some reason it's fallen into disrepair. Now, Ellerslie is a Scottish name. Isn't that sort of fun? Even though we rarely ever have a Scot that ever comes to Ellerslie. We need to recruit Scots is what we need to do. I, I, not like Scott, you know, like the name Scott, some guy named Scott Mitchell. Uh, but Scottish people. We need Scots to be able to come to Ellerslie with that one accent that they have. Uh, Steve Rosen does a very good job of it. Uh, listen to the, this is what Steve taught me. It's a great day for a boat race. <laughs> Isn't that good? I did that. One of the worst at, uh, accents in the world is Eric Ludi, yet I did that, okay? And every single one of you knows that was a good Scottish accent there. There's something known as the Scottish Covenanters. This message isn't about the Scottish Covenanters. However, it's an incredible lead-in, because I would have named this message the Covenanters even if the Scottish Covenanters hadn't existed, because that's what this message is about. It's about those who enter into covenant. And when you enter into covenant, the very concept of covenant is exchange. It's basically you give up something to gain something. It is a very serious act. When I entered into covenant with Leslie, I was giving up life as a single person. I was no longer available for any girl. I was only united to one. It's an exclusive relationship. And when you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. Well, Scotland, 1638. King Charles I issues an edict, basically, that he is the equivalent of what would be the Pope in Scotland. That he is over the church of Jesus Christ. He is over it. He is higher than God himself. He is, with papal authority, basically, inerrant and without flaw, and he can determine doctrine and theology and what the Scots will believe. What would you do? Well, 1638 is when the men and women of God banded together and they entered into the covenant. The covenant that says, we serve none as king but Jesus Christ. If any king of this earth would cause us to refute the person of Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ, We say no, and we will follow Jesus Christ even unto our death. And they did. And countless thousands of them were murdered and mutilated, uh, hung, burned, terrible atrocities. The Covenanters, isn't that a very happy notion to start out our, our message with? Some of the most extraordinary tales. In fact, I want someone to become an expert at Ellerslie of the Scottish Covenanters. Uh, I think they're a worthy study. This is from, I wish I could say his name the Scottish way, George Gilfillan, uh, from the book Martyrs and Heroes of the Covenant. Listen to this statement that he wrote about the Scottish Covenanters. They were terribly in earnest. The passion that was in them, like all great passions, refused to be divided. Their idea possessed them with a force and a fullness to which we find few parallels in history. It haunted their sleep. It awoke them in the morning. It walked like their shadow with them to business or to pleasure. It became the breath of their nostrils and the soul of their soul. Now I want to draw somewhat of a comparison here and get into the meat of what I do want to talk about. And that is that King Charles I asked of the people of God Something that they cannot give. As it says in all good Covenanter history, the Scots would not have had any problem submitting to the Stuart line of kings. They would not have had any problem listening, serving, fighting, dying for King Charles I. But he must not usurp the position of Jesus Christ. 
They would have gladly served him, gladly died for him. But do not touch the person of Jesus. Let's go way back in history to the first king of Israel. So King Charles I, very similar to another king known as Saul. What he did was he took a position in Israel that belonged to God. God rejects him out of hand. Just like the covenanters reject King Charles I. No. God says, out. And this is what he says to him. This is a fascinating line. I have this, the title, the better man. Okay, I'm going to build on that. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Who is the better man? It's Jesus. Well, in this case, it's David, King David. But so we're going to build this parallel. Remember the covenanters, they're saying, no one touches our Jesus. Well, back in that day, back in Saul's day, it was, hey, there's a better man that God has hallmarked. And his name is David. So what you're going to see is you're going to see this conflict that brews throughout the ages. And that is a king who refuses to relinquish his throne, who desires to control and put himself over those under his rule. And then there's this better man, which we can call the rightful king. The flesh versus the spirit. King Charles I versus Jesus Christ. When you set it up like that, doesn't King Charles I sound rather wimpy? King Charles I versus Jesus Christ. Who's going to win? Uh, we know exactly who's going to win. However, there is a time when we have King Saul versus King David. And guess what? If you say, who's going to win? Every single one of us knows who did win. We know that David did gain his throne. In the same way, Jesus will gain his throne in this earth. But guess what? There's a season of persecution. There's a season where all the natural realm would boast and proclaim, look, King Saul is too strong. He is not yielding his throne. See, that was the main problem. The Scottish covenanters appealed to King Charles I. And they said, hey, buddy, we cannot yield to this. This is inappropriate. Don't you realize what the word of God says? We cannot bow to you. If you are going to usurp the position that belongs to Jesus Christ, we cannot serve you with any loyalty. We can only serve Jesus Christ. Well, how about Saul? Saul says, I'm not giving up this throne. God says, I've taken it from you. I've rejected you. I have a better man for that throne. I'm not giving it up. Now, we're talking about history here. We're talking about King Charles I and the Covenanters. We're talking about King Saul and King David. But how about you and me? Because there's always that first king, King Charles I, inside of you, that wants to be above Jesus Christ, that wants to rule the lands of Scotland, that wants to do it your way. And the Covenanter, covenanter voice within appeals. It says, you must yield. There is a greater king that must have the dominion over this body, over the church of Jesus Christ. Flesh versus spirit. What I've done here is I've compiled a list of scriptures that enunciate this great tension. Okay? And so you'll see the great collection up there. Romans 8, Galatians 4, and then Philippians 3. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These guys are at enmity with each other. They're at odds. And they have never gotten along all throughout history. They do not live in the same room well together. Flesh and the spirit do not behave Together, And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now that is a very quick overview. But if you know your Bible, in the New Testament you see this idea of flesh versus Spirit that begins to come out. And it says there are two things at war within you. You see, you know those old cartoons that had like a demon and then an angel? 
Well, I'm not saying that's exactly the way it is, but there's some similarity there. There are two powers at odds. In what you have is Rebecca, her womb, she was barren, and Isaac entreats the Lord on her behalf, and she conceives. Well, what does she have in her womb? She has twins. And these twins are at enmity with each other, and they are wrestling. And what it says is there's two manner of people within her womb, two nations that are at war, flesh and spirit. The first one comes out all hairy, Esau. The second one, Jacob, who is to become Israel. The first is the flesh, the second is the spirit. The first is always the flesh. You'll notice this throughout history. The firstborn is always the flesh. The secondborn is always the spirit. The secondborn always looks weaker, but then triumphs in the end. Cain, Abel. Ishmael, Isaac. Esau, Jacob. Saul, David. This is just the pattern all throughout history. It's extraordinary. The better man versus the old man. The old man is also known as the flesh in Scripture. So we have the better man, Jesus, versus the old man. Now we know who's going to win, don't we? However, what's funny is you've been controlled by your old man probably for most of your life. And he seems so powerful. He doesn't seem to want to get off that throne. He's like, I'm staying here. I'm not yielding. Well, God's rejected you. I don't care. There's a better man for this throne. I don't want him. Hey, watch your attitude. It's not a good attitude to have. And some of you are like, I know, I don't want to have the attitude. You see, the old man is controlling this palace, this nation, this you. You are the wrong manner of people. You are controlled by the wrong ruler, the old man. So in 1 Corinthians 15, remember I said the, the flesh is always first and the spirit is always second. And so it is written, the first man... Adam became a living being. So who is the first man? Adam. The last Adam, so here's the second, is Jesus. Became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. In other words, the natural, or that which is of the earth, or that which is of the flesh, is what's first. And the spiritual, that which is of the spirit, always comes second. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. This is exciting stuff. Some of you aren't fully catching it yet, but don't worry. We're building this. Here's another collection, uh, which is dealing with the old man. Remember we talked about the better man versus the old man. Okay, we're dealing with Saul versus David. We're dealing with, even go back, Jacob, uh, Esau and Jacob. Now we're dealing with uh, King Charles I and the Covenanters. You have this enmity. One that is attempting to put himself over that which is supposed to be ruled only by Jesus Christ. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. Whoa. The old man, that second, that, I'm sorry, that first man, that man of the flesh, that King Charles I within you, he's actually been put away. He's actually been dealt with by Christ 2,000 years ago. It's not your job to beat him up. It's your job to take the purchase of the cross. Put off the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, remember what I said in the beginning. I was talking about the title. This is the Covenanters. And I said a covenant is basically an exchange. Well, what you see here is this concept of putting something off in exchange for something different. You're putting off one ruler for a different one. In this one, it actually says, put off the old man, almost like it's a garment, and put on the new man. Which is created, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. This is covenant talk, by the way. The bizarre covenant with the better man. So Saul is rejected. 
The reason he was rejected is because he didn't destroy the Amalekites, ironically. And the Amalekites are the descendants, get this, of Esau. They are symbolic of the flesh in Israel. And the first thing Saul is asked to do is destroy them, wipe them out. But he doesn't. Well, he sort of does, but he does it on his terms. He wipes out the grosser elements of the Amalekites and keeps the best of their sheep, the best of their oxen, and their king alive. Why? Because that's a good king strategy. You know, if one of those uh, Amalekites that was out doing business in another country comes back, finds out that his wife and kids have been completely obliterated, he's not too happy about it. Who, what does he want to do? Take revenge on Israel. And so what does Saul do? Holds up King Agag, their king of the Amalekites, with a knife to his throat and says, one wrong move and I slit the throat of your king. And they back off. This is just control. Saul wants to be in control his way. This is the flesh. This is how we work. Okay? So the bizarre covenant with the better man. Who's the better man? In this story, Saul, David, it's David. David was the better man. God makes it clear that that, you know, I've rejected Saul and there's a better man for this job. It's the second. It's the one that is completely overlooked in all of Israel. Even Jesse, when Samuel is going to anoint the king, doesn't even invite this better man. Even Jesse, the father, doesn't even recognize that this is the better man. That's the way the better man works. You remember uh, Jacob? The description of Jacob in Scripture? Get this one. For all of us guys that, uh, you know, are like, <laughs> you know, we want a good description. Esau's hairy all over and he's a hunter and eats his venison. It's like, now that's a man. Okay, listen to this. Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now that's exciting. Talk about a description. Guess what? That's the better man. The better man doesn't look the part. God knows it. You know, the Spirit of God doesn't look the part of what is going to rescue the church of Jesus Christ today. What do we think? Marketing. We need to have advertisements for the church. We need to look hip and cool to the world. And God says, you humble yourself before me. Become my vehicle. Allow me to put your face in the dust if necessary. And I will move mightily in this generation. What? That's the better man. It's the better way. It's God's way. You know that Jesus wouldn't have been our way? If we had come up with the ultimate rescue strategy for earth, we would not have come up with Jesus. You know that there was nothing about him beauty-wise that would have drawn anyone to him. He looked illegitimate. He surrounded himself with rabble, fishermen, and tax collectors. This guy's a, it's a terrible plan. And then he dies, and he doesn't defend himself. Everyone's going to think you're really a criminal. What are you doing? He dies. That isn't the best strategy for winning. It is when you're the better man. You see, God knows what he's doing. And he knows what he's doing in us as well. The bizarre covenant with the better man. Now this goes back to Saul David. Saul, he's the one with the throne. Does he deserve it? No. Should he still remain on it? No. Who's Saul's son? Do any of you guys remember Saul's son's name? Jonathan. You know, Jonathan's in a pretty good position here. You know, his dad is the king of Israel. Who's going to inherit the king of Israel? You know, because Israel sort of had the divine right of kings thing going here. And so if Saul dies, who's going to inherit the throne? Jonathan. That's just the way it goes. And some of you are going, no, 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 it should be David. Yeah, but that isn't the mentality here in Israel. You see, all of Israel is recognizing Saul as king. Who's going to get the throne? Jonathan will. And Jonathan's going to get the entire inheritance that Saul has. All his lands, all his power, all his control. It's all going to go to Jonathan. This guy has it good. He's the son of the king. You know, this is sort of like us. We are in a position to take our life and our body and to say, Mine. You know what? I can do something with these gifts and these talents. I can do something with my birth. I can do something with the fact that I have a life here on planet Earth. Pull myself up by my bootstraps and be an American. It's good old classic American thinking. Jonathan's in the position to do it. However, we have something strange that happens. The bizarre covenant with the better man. Who is Jonathan's greatest enemy? It's his dad's greatest enemy. It's the one who rightfully deserves the throne that belongs to Jonathan. What? See, Saul's not going to give up that throne. If Jonathan had any smarts whatsoever, don't you think he should side with Saul? 
And he should say, kill this man. Kill this David. He actually is imagining that my throne belongs to him. I'm the rightful heir to Saul's throne. You can have the same attitude in your body. Mine! Pull a Charles I. Mine! I want this territory, but who does it rightfully belong to? Jesus Christ. Don't touch it! It belongs to Jesus Christ. So that's what I'm calling it, the bizarre covenant. This is about as strange a thing as you could ever imagine to happen in history, that the rightful heir to a throne sides with his greatest nemesis. The one who's going to take all that belongs to him. What kind of thing is this? It's bizarre. Now, I, I have a whole bunch of strings of verses here, okay? I know I'm piling a whole bunch of stuff together quickly. Listen to this. The soul of Jonathan, that's the son of Saul, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David. With his armor, even to his sword, and his bow and his belt. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until the morning and stay in a secret place and hide. You know that that's treason? What, what Jonathan did there was treason against Saul. But he's fighting for the future of the better man. If David gets knocked off, guess what? Jonathan has, a, has an open kingdom. That throne is his. What is he doing? He's sabotaging his own future. That's what people will say about you too. You have a future. You have a hope. Don't give it to Jesus. Don't relinquish it to the better man. He wants that throne. I know he does. He's the rightful owner of it. This kingdom belongs to Jesus. I know it looks in the natural realm like it's rightfully yours, but it's not. You were bought with a price. So Jonathan said to David, listen to this line, whatever you, you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. You see, Jonathan is a descendant of the flesh. Just like you. You're a descendant of Adam. The first man, Adam. You know, he messed this whole thing up. It took the second man, the last Adam, to come in and make it all right again. But make sure you respond to that second Adam correctly. Make sure you allow the better man to rightfully take what is his. The making and affirming of covenant. Listen to this. It's just a compilation of all the times it says that David and Jonathan made a covenant. 1 Samuel 18.3 Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. 1 Samuel 20.16 So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. 1 Samuel 20, 17. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. 1 Samuel 23, 18. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. At the end of today, we're going to actually have communion. And I want you to realize that what we're studying right now is a picture of that. Communion is a covenant meal. It's what it is. It's a meal that celebrates an exchange. It's a binding Thing to the soul. And so what you see in, in David and Jonathan's life and relationship is it wasn't just once. It was a reaffirming of a covenant. And there is something about that. When you think about the covenant that we, we have with Jesus Christ, it's not just that we make a covenant with him, but there's a constant reaffirming of those vows of saying, my body for you, consecrated fully unto you, these hands, these feet, these eyes, these, this mouth, this mind, this heart, it's yours. It belongs to you for you to do with as you see fit. The exchange. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, I don't know if you guys remember. and It depends on how detailed you've been and how you've been listening. But you remember what Jonathan did? 
When he entered into covenant with David, he removed his robe. It was the first thing it says that he did. What did Jesus do when he entered into covenant with us? He removes his robe. I mean, think about it. Even the night before he died, he removes his outer garments, wraps a towel around his waist, bends his knee, and washes his bride's feet. Something about this robe, just like Elijah has a, had a mantle, and it falls down when he's carried up in the whirlwind into heaven. And then Elisha picks up his mantle. It's like a cloak. It's a covering. We have a covering. We have a cloak. We have a robe that has been bequeathed to us in and through his death. Just sort of hanging there on the hook. And Jesus says, take it. Get the old man off. Stick the new man on. You see, you can only enter into heaven, the courts of heaven, based on righteousness. And if you ever measure yourself against the righteousness of God, you will find that you have nothing to offer. Nothing! But he has righteousness to offer. And he says, clothe yourself in my work. Clothe yourself in the work that I have done for you. Okay, so what we see is the beginnings of the understanding of covenant here. He's saying, will you take my robe? I have given you my robe. Put it on. Okay, now remember, the concept is an exchange. Which means to put on his robe, what do you need to do? Take off the one you're wearing. You're wearing the old man. You're wearing a life that is all about you. You're wearing dreams and desires and passions and ambitions that serve you. Your King Charles I's ambitions must die. Take off the robe. Take off that which covers you so that you can be covered in what you must be covered by. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In him. Clothed in him. He was made sin that we would be saved. Here's the statement in 1 Samuel 18 again. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So let's look at this a little deeper. The four sacred elements of exchange. The robe. The robe in scripture is understood as authority, position, name, and reputation. The garments, possessions, inheritance. All you have. Everything you possess, not just now, but in the future. Your inheritance. It all gets thrown into the kitty. The whole thing. That's a lot. It's not just what you have in your bank account today. Some of us are like, I'm low in my bank account today. So we're like, okay, God freeze frame right here. This is what I give you. No, it's everything you will make in the future. It's everything you will make even when your descendant or the people that are before you that you would receive an inheritance from die. All of it belongs to him from the past into the future. That's, That's extreme. That's too much. Three, sword and bow, which symbolizes protection, preservation, watchful eye of defense. You see, when we think about giving these things to God, we're saying, so you're saying that I need to be a protector of truth? I need to be a protector of my own soul? I need to be a protector of the weak? Yeah. What we fail to see when we look at this is what we get in this exchange. Most of us always fixate on what God's asking for. He's asking for too much. That's way too much. Because you can't ask for my robe and... uh, What was the second one? Garments? Sword and bow? I mean, that's just all my time, all my energy. If I have to look out for you and everyone who bears your name, I'm exhausted just pondering it. And we fail to realize what he is giving us. Girdle. Belt, okay. Girdle's a little awkward. It sounds. Uh, I, I won't go into what it sounds like, but uh, enabling power, quickening strength. You see, from the belt, this is where you get that drive, that gusto. You tighten that belt. Luke twenty two fourteen through twenty. And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, 
With desire I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This, is the cup of, in the, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Now, for those of you that have heard me talk about communion before, this, this will sound familiar. If you haven't, then this might be a little, take you a little off guard. Communion is a covenant meal, which means it's not just remembering that his body and his blood were bl- broken and shed. It's not just a remembrance of what he did. It is a remembrance of covenant. It is a remembrance of what he did, which is extraordinary, but it's also an affirming of covenant. God, your body was broken. I accept your body as my own. Your body was broken for me, and I take it, and I become your body. But in exchange, I give you my body. And now, my body belongs to you. It was purchased, it was bought with a price. And my body now will become the temple, the house, the haven of the Most High God. And you can fill me and do with this body anything you see fit. Take it anywhere you want to take it. Make it say anything you want it to say. Make it do anything you want it to do. I am in covenant with you. Your body is mine. My body is yours. Second, blood. That little cup, what does it symbolize? Life. To a Hebrew, blood is life. And we're saying when we take that, it's not just a remembrance of his precious shed blood, which it is. But it's also a reaffirming of the fact that we have received his life. And his life is our only hope. We have no life outside of it. His life is eternal. His life is everything we need. So we say... I accept your life. I receive your life. And in response, I give you my own. My blood belongs to Jesus Christ. And he can spend it, spill it, any way he sees fit. So, he asks for everything. Whew. Mm, That one hurts. Everything. You notice that I don't hesitate when I say that? I'm so far past having to wrestle with this. I accept it. I love it. Now I get to make other people squirm about it. Everything. Every bit of it. You want life and life abundant? Enter into covenant with Jesus Christ. This is how you find it. You hold on to your life like Saul. When you hear that message from the prophet, it says, get off the throne. That throne doesn't belong to you. I have a better man that's supposed to be sitting on it. There's a wrestling match. There's a spear in your hand, a javelin. You throw it at the better man. Out of here. I want my life on my terms. And so then you'll have the, the better man come in and play the harp for you. And he's like, well, he's still in the kingdom, okay? He's still in the domain. Yeah, but who's sitting on the throne, Saul? That's beside the question. I, I'm made for this throne. This is my throne. He gave it to me. I can sit here if I want. And you're destroying Israel as long as you do. Your life, your body... Is going down the tubes as long as you sit in the position that belongs to the better man. Get off. That javelin, let go of it. If that javelin needs to go anywhere, it's straight into you. Let go of your defenses. Give up your life. It does not belong to you. It belongs to him. He asks for everything. Our robe. He asks for our position, our name, our fame. And authority in exchange for his. Will you give up your reputation? Will you be willing to be deemed a fanatic and a fool? Or as Paul would say, an idiotes. An idiot. Who wants to... God, don't you want to look good in this world? I'm more concerned about what's going on with your interior life right now. You give up that robe. Will you surrender your name and allow it to be swallowed up in his name? No longer will anything be about you, but your life from this day forward will be about him and his glory. 
Will you give up position, fame, and worldly authority in order to become, his, become royalty in his kingdom? Our garments, our earthly possessions, and our corruptible inheritance in exchange for the eternal treasure of the kingdom. Will you relinquish everything you possess for him? I don't know how many of you have ever had a very low amount in your bank account and never had God ask for everything in it. It's a funny thing. If you have $10 and God asks for 5 it's doable. If you have $10 and he asks for 9 it's hard, but you still have that $1. I remember when I was in missionary school and God, I mean, I only had like $5, okay? So it doesn't sound that impressive, I know. But I tell you what, anytime God asks for everything, it's hard. Because what's going through my mind is I need sailing solution. I wear contacts, and if I don't have sailing solution, I can't even put my contacts in the next day. I'm going to be walking around blind as a bat. God, you don't want that. Would you give me that $5, Eric? Javelin in hand. Don't make me do it, God. You're the one that's pulling the trigger here. We will wrestle over that $1 because we don't trust our God. God is called the better man. You're impressed with Saul. Saul was head and shoulders above all of Israel. In the natural realm, he had the stuff. And God says, you may not see it in the natural realm, but our king is even better. Our king has everything you will need for life and godliness. He will supply everything you could need. Are you willing to give up your garments? Gulp. Will you give up the applause of men, the security of financial stability, even the comforts of a self-indulgent existence? Will you give him your health, your wealth, your every material thing for him to do with as he sees fit? Does God like to stick people on the streets begging? No. That isn't his great plan for you. You have to trust him. The key is, are you willing to give up to your God? It doesn't mean that he's going to take it. Remember Isaac? Of course, some of us are going, okay, so that means I raise the knife and that means he supplies something else over here. You also need to be willing to drop the knife. You need to be willing to obey him in whatever he leads you to do. But the point is, God's in control of your life and he knows how to lead you. You have to trust him. Our sword and bow, our human defense in exchange for his almighty defense. Will you let down your defenses and allow him to remodel your life? Will you allow him to discipline you, convict you, transform you into something that is, this world will reject, revile, and crucify? Will you surrender to him your self-preservation in exchange for his preservation of your existence on planet Earth? Will you allow him to use your life to fight his battles rather than your own self-aggrandizing battles? Our belt. Or for those of you that liked the word girdle, uh, our girdle. I think Mike Hahn liked that word, so I'll use that for him. Our, Mike Hahn's girdle. Uh, <laughs> Our ability to perform in exchange for his enabling power and quickening grace. I don't know if you guys have ever realized this, but we're pretty pathetic. Now, we don't like to admit that. And in the church, we're more readily uh, going to admit that than outside the church. But we run out of steam. We run out of energy. We run out of all that we need to carry out this life with any consistency. You try and dig down into your own well, it runs dry. You have your moments where you're feeling really on top of the world. I can do this. That well runs dry. Do you want to run from your well, your energies, or do you want to tap into a deeper one? How about giving up your belt for his enabling grace and quickening, enabling power and quickening grace? Will you allow him to break you? Will you surrender to him your self-derived strength so that he may replace it with his own heavenly version of world-altering power? Will you give him the privilege of keeping you dependent so that he might prove his might in and through your life? Will you allow him the privilege of showcasing his glory to this world through your existence? <clears throat> he asks for everything. Yes. Yeah. So just in case some of you go, are, are, you sure? are you sure it's everything that he's asking for? Isn't it just 10%? I could have sworn there's something about only giving 10% of your life to God. I mean, if you have money, then you only give 10%. We're supposed to have the 90. He asks for everything. <clears throat> yes. There's more. But remember, dot, dot, dot. He gives us everything that could possibly matter in return. Who's getting the short end of the stick? God is giving up everything. 
And yes, he's asking for everything from you. How much do you really have to give? You like have your little everything down here. And you're like, this is so precious. And God, you're actually asking for this. And he's given you the inheritance of heaven. And you're complaining. If we could see it with a true heavenly perspective. And we would realize our diddly squat amount here that we're giving, which is worthless in heaven. It has no eternal value. Nothing. All it does is damn our soul to hell to hold on to it. It's worth nothing. And he has everything that lasts for all eternity that moth and rust cannot destroy. Endless supplies of it. You want love. He has every bit of love to offer. Limitless supply. Joy. Peace. Patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Unlimited caverns for you to explore for the rest of eternity. The fullness of who he is. No barrier between you and the depths of who he is. All the riches that he possesses. And you're complaining. Yes, he asks for everything. But yes, he gives you everything he is everything he has by the way we're talking about the creator of the universe giving you everything he has and who are you to be negotiating terms who are you to maintain your throne with your spear in hand and to say mine mine you want to live a miserable life live the life of saul that guy was tormented Day in and day out. He was sitting on a throne that did not belong to him. And yes, he made it rough for David for 10 years. But guess what? David still got that throne. And yes, the enemy, King Charles I, is making it difficult for the covenanters. 100, 150 years, sure. It's a rough season. This season of persecution, but guess what? Jesus will get what is rightfully his. And those that stand against the true rulership of Jesus Christ find themselves tormented day in and day out. I was reading about one of the uh, lords of, I don't know, it was of England or Scotland. Lord Ar- Argyle, so it sounds like it has to be Scotland. Doesn't Argyle just sound Scottish? And he was one of the ones that condemned one of the first covenanters to uh, the stake. And he knew that the man was a godly man. He knew it. But he detested and he wanted the opinion of Charles I over all these covenanters who were standing against his king. And he knew as the man was dying at the stake, I don't know how to say it, but it's almost like God spoke to him because he confided in one of his close friends. He said, I feel as if I know that I am going to die in the same spot that that man died that I sentenced to death. And it wasn't but months later that he was sentenced to death and died in the exact same spot. It's just not the wise way to live. There's a better man, and he wants that throne. He purchased it with his blood. Jonathan took off his robe. Will we? He had everything. He had, Jonathan, if anyone, I mean, because you could look at your paltry life, and it's just like, yeah, take the robe. <laughs> I don't want this anymore. Jonathan had a lot. And so if you're struggling, just remember Jonathan. He had a lot to lose. He had a lot more than any of us. I don't know if any of us are in succession to become a king of a nation. Okay? In other words, this is pretty high. And Jonathan himself, when he saw the better man, loved him. Delighted in him. And said, this robe, it comes off for you. So this is my adapted version of the story of... Jonathan and David, and instead of David, I put in Jesus, and I have an insert your name here. So you guys are going to need to work with me, because I can't really stick all of your names in here. The soul of, like for me, it would be Eric. Okay, this is just leading you along here. The soul of Eric was knit to the soul of Jesus. And Eric loved him as his own soul. Then Eric and Jesus made a covenant Because he loved him as his own soul. And Eric took off the robe that was on him and gave it to Jesus. And his armor, even to his sword, and his bow and his belt. 
Now, in the scriptures, it says, now Saul spoke. So in here, I said, old man. Which, you know, old man is like the, typically a father, right? So this is Jonathan's father. So this really works well. Now the old man spoke to Eric and to all his servants that they should kill Jesus. But Eric delighted greatly in Jesus. So Eric told Jesus, saying, My old man seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. So Eric said to Jesus, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So Eric made a covenant with the house of Jesus, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of Jesus' enemies. So Eric arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for Jesus. Because his old man had treated him shamefully. It's Christianity. Right there in a nutshell. I I put adapted. Just so you don't think that that is actually the canonized version of of it. Okay. Instead of Jonathan or instead of Eric or your name. I put in the covenanters. Because those are the ones that enter into covenant with Jesus Christ. When the the Scottish Covenanters signed that document in their blood, they knew that they were going to die. They knew it! But they will not back down on the point that Jesus must rule his church. And Jesus must rule our lives as individuals. Jesus must rule our families. We're not going to submit our families to just any whim of rulership out there. They belong to Jesus Christ, and we will die gladly to maintain the integrity of that covenant. We're the covenanters! Don't you like the sound of that? We're the covenanters! So here's here's our scripture. The souls of the covenanters were knit to the soul of Jesus, and the covenanters loved him as their own soul. Then the covenanters and Jesus made a covenant, because they loved him as their own soul. So the covenanters said to Jesus, Whatever you yourself desire, we will do it for you. That's Christianity. Whatever our Jesus desires us to do for him, we will gladly do it for him. That's Christianity. That's what it means to take the body and the blood in communion. That! I'll read it again just so that we remember as we're closing here. By the way, could we get the the communion... uh, The souls of the covenanters were knit to the soul of Jesus, and the covenanters loved him as their own soul. Then the covenanters and Jesus made a covenant, because they loved him as their own soul. So the covenanters said to Jesus, whatever you yourself desire, we will do it for you. Let's pray. Just like the Scottish covenanters, Father, we know... That by taking this meal, we are setting ourselves against the powers of this world and the powers of this age. We are defying them and snubbing our noses at them. And we are saying we stand with Jesus Christ against King Charles I. We are standing with David against King Saul. We stand with Jesus against all the powers of earth and hell. Against all the systems of this earth. We serve one king. King Jesus. And we will seal that with the blood of Jesus. We're the covenanters. We know what it means. This meal is serious business. We do not take it lightly. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a sobriety of mind, sobriety of understanding, a sobriety of heart. Protect those of us that are not ready to take this meal today. I pray that there would be no pressure that we'd all be able to make a decision before our God in good conscience today. Lord, preserve the integrity of this meal in our midst and may it not be degraded. And as we raise the standard and the value of this meal in our generation, I pray, Lord Jesus, that the church at large would also make a name for yourself in our midst, Lord. Amen. I'm just going to go back. I was going to see if someone at the... Could you guys go in the back? The very top of the slide, it's like the third slide of this message. It's that quote from the Scottish man who wrote in the book. I wanted to reflect upon that. 
This is the Covenanters. By the way, this is you. I know we live in easy, cozy America. This is what we prepare for. You know that Scotland was set free? They were living in perfect harmony and peace. And then suddenly King Charles I usurped that sacred position of headship over the church. And all hell broke loose. It doesn't take much. Where do we stand? Are we ready to prove ourselves the covenanters before that dark day? So that when that day comes, we walk forward in perfect confidence because we greatly desire and love. Our souls are knit to the soul of our Jesus. They're knit. They're not going to talk us out of it. It's not some emotional whim. This is our life. I'm not going to betray my wife. I'm not going to betray my kids. Why? My soul is knit to them. And my soul is knit to Jesus Christ. I don't deny him. I don't walk away from him. I don't care how much gold they set in front of me. It's not worth it. Nothing is. I would never sacrifice that. That's what matters to me. That is my great delight. They were terribly in earnest. May it be said of us. The passion that was in them, like all great passions. Let me read this differently. The covenanters of Ellerslie were terribly in earnest. The passion that was in them, like all great passions, refused to be divided. Their idea possessed them with a force and a fullness to which we find few parallels in history. It haunted their sleep. It awoke them in the morning. It walked like their shadow with them to business or to pleasure. It became the breath of their nostrils and the soul of their soul. That's good. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.